Hi, and welcome to Responsa Radio, where you ask and we answer questions of Jewish law in modern times. I'm Rabbi Avi Killup, Executive Vice President at Hadar, here with Rabbi Ethan Tucker, Rosh Yeshiva at Hadar, a center for higher Jewish learning based in New York City. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to you. So I'm excited to bring today's question. It's not a topic that we've discussed before, actually. You, you would think that a radio show is one-way direction usually, right? We talk and other people are listening. But one of the things that I love about this show and the fact that people write in questions is that not only are they learning, are you learning about halakha from us, but I actually feel like I learned so much about the questions that arise from the questions that people ask. Um, and some of that is because... We live different lives. People have these really interesting jobs. They're a professor running a research study or a lawyer looking at crime scene photos, um, which are all these situations, these moments, these encounters that never come up in my life because that's not the life that I'm leading. So I'm particularly grateful for this question we have today because it also just it introduces a different perspective on the world. Yeah, I feel that a lot too. Uh, We learned so much from this, those of us who spent a lot of time in the Beit Midrash or in just sort of Jewish communal settings on a professional level. We don't get the same kind of just range of interaction with all kinds of different life scenarios that some of our listeners really bring to the fore for us. Yeah, I think it helps us understand the expansiveness of halakha and what it can apply to and what it can mean. So here's her question. I'm a veterinary technology student, veterinary medicine's analog to nursing school. The work is fascinating. I love the animals, and I'm incredibly grateful to be where I am. That said, being in this field is also putting me in intimate proximity to some complicated and emotional situations. I've particularly been struggling with unpacking the ethics of the use of animals in biomedical research. Can halachic approaches to balancing human needs with the concern of tsar ba'alei chayim, pain experienced by other living things, inform how we approach the treatment of animals in modern research? So this is the heart of her question, but she has one last question that she adds, which I'll share here and we can come back to at the end. She says, on a more granular note, is there a blessing appropriate to mark the death of an animal outside of ritual slaughter? Wow, really interesting, that last practical point and the larger question here of already being set up, I think, in a very helpful way about balancing two different things here. We've got human needs that are clearly being served by biomedical research, and is there, isn't there, some kind of notion of not causing pain to animals and this concept of tsa'ar ba'alei So maybe the best way to do this is to jump in first, just to a little bit trying to trace and identify what is this concept of concern about Tsar Bale Chaim? Like, does Judaism care about pain that happens to other living beings, to animals, and, and where is that rooted? And then maybe we can get to the, the balancing piece. Well, what about you know pain that might be an unfortunate consequence of something that feels like it's important? Yeah, so what what is this concept? Where does that even come from? Where's the, where's the phrase come from? Yeah, so it's super interesting. The phrase is a rabbinic phrase, but let's try to figure out. I mean, if I were to ask you for a minute, hey, 
Does the Torah care about that? Is there anywhere in the Torah where it talks about concern for animals? Like if you were just, I don't know, riffing off the top of your head, what, what might you come up with? Yeah, well, we we are recording um, during the high holiday season, actually. So my first go-to is this amazing line at the end of the book of Jonah. Um, I don't know if you've ever paid attention all the way till the end. You'll you notice that the, it ends on this line like, and what about the animals? The animals need to be saved, too. Um, and it always strikes me as such a, a surprising end to that book, right? This is a whole story about humanity and Yom Kippur is this moment of very human-centered moment. Um, and that book ends with this, like, you know, concern for the animals in the room. Yeah, so that's the kind of place, there's a few kind of narrative elements there where you can imagine maybe there's some indication that God cares about animals, and we should too. So the end of the book of Jonah is one example like that. Another interesting example is in the story of Bil'am, the prophet who's coming to curse Israel. Um, The angel comes out and says, why did you beat your donkey? And you could read that as, hey, you shouldn't be beating a donkey. It's an animal. Um, Or, you know, a line that many people say multiple times a day as part of the ashray, Tov Hashem lakol verachamav al kol ma'asav, God is good to all, and God's mercy extends to all of God's creation, right? Maybe that includes animals. So there's things out there that sort of indicate um, God, angels, messengers of the divine care about animals. Okay, great. Another example of uh, a potential locus for this, you have two verses, one in Shemot, one in Devarim, uh, that talk about when you encounter animals that are basically falling down or under overly heavy burdens, and you need to help the owner lift those animals back up. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's part of a concern for the well-being of the animal. As opposed to the owner. Correct. So with each of these, you can deflect, Mm -hmm. right? So that verse might be about concern for the animal, or it might be, no, this other person is having car trouble, right? right? You need to help them. Um, Or even the statements about God may be sort of rhetorical. They're broad, you know, God's mercy extends to all of God's creations that could also include trees, you know, or other things that are out there in the world that may not be an animal-specific or a pain-specific concern. Another mitzvah in the Torah, you're not allowed to muzzle an ox while it is uh, engaged in threshing. Mm -hmm. When it's walking through the field, basically, um, you're not allowed to deny it the ability to eat. So that might be because it's animal cruelty to do that. Or you might deflect it and say, well, it's not fair to the ox while working to deprive the ox of sort of its salary, as it were, uh, of grass or grain or whatever it is. But it's not a general statement, uh, right, about about the need to be, uh, you know, considerate of animal pain. Yeah. Do you read the um, instruction to send away the mother bird before we take the eggs from the nest. Great. So some commentators read that, right? It's mean to the, it's emotionally pain inflicting to have the mother bird watch, right? The, The eggs being taken away. So you have to send her away. But other readings there think it's about sort of a sustainable practice or it's not about being overly greedy uh, or any number of other angles on this. So kind of the big picture is, I would say, if you're looking for places in the Torah 
where you could find an idea you already hold that God, the Torah, Judaism cares about animal suffering, you can find it in a number of places. And if you were for some reason not looking for that or thinking that's a more marginal concern, almost every source could be deflected. I have to also say what is maybe an obvious question. I feel like it's the one that came up in my childhood with the, my animal-loving friends. It's the, the one that people most ask. What, what about sacrifices here, right? It really hurts pe- people who love animals and who feel natural instinct very high animal intelligence, um, those people really struggle to believe that we have a spiritual practice that includes killing animals. That's right. And I would say an internal motivation for potentially saying, I don't think the Torah has this as a primary concern, is if you look at the Torah's quite obvious permission for people to eat meat and requirement even to bring animals and slaughter them to the sanctuary for all kinds of contexts and uh, atonement and, uh, and special days and all of that, if you assume that killing an animal um, is a form of causing it pain, mm-hmm. well, then it doesn't seem the Torah is that worked up about it. Of course, that's a big leap, and we'll come back to that. The same way uh, with respect to human beings, you have any number of criminal regimes that may warrant execution of a person, but forbid torture in Mm -hmm. any form, there may be a difference between taking something's life for a purpose as opposed to simply inflicting pain. Yeah, that definitely feels like a distinction that remains relevant to today. Um, You know, I certainly know many people who care very much about how they eat Um, and how the animals that they eat were treated, even though they're eating animals. That's right. That's right. So all of those are compatible. This is a good example, I think, of when you look at the Torah closely and you realize, well, I could read it this way or I could read it that way, gets totally confirmed by the little bit of Talmudic evidence we have about this. There is a passage in the Talmud in Bava Metziah, which goes on for a good page or so about the question of, is Tsa'ar Ba'alei Chaim, is the concern of not causing pain to animals de oraita or de rabbanan? Is it fundamentally a biblical-based concern, or is it a rabbinic-level concern? And we learn two things from that Talmudic passage, from that sugya. The first is, it ends inconclusively. Uh There is no clear answer there, which reflects what we were talking about, the ambiguity of the scriptural record. But it also seems to assume that this is, of course, a concern. It's just, is it at the biblical or rabbinic level? So when you say, well, if this is something you're looking for in the Torah because you already believe it to be true, that's not an assessment of a modern disposition. That's actually already what the Talmud is doing. That's right. They know It's not okay to cause pain to animals, at least within certain parameters, which we'll explore. Um, But they're not sure what's the level of that concern. And sometimes the reason that matters, because a lot of times you can say, who cares if it's rabbinic, if it's biblical, you said you have to do it. Um, It will get exactly to questions like the trade-off that our questioner is getting at. Well, okay, something that's at a rabbinic level might yield more easily in the face of other values, as opposed to saying something is biblical might be a way of saying, 
hey, this is a non-negotiable, or at least to negotiate it, you're going to need to come in with a very clear opposing value. You know, I also think that the person who wrote in this question could probably relate to and understand that Talmudic sagia in a way that you and I can't because we don't spend our daily lives holding animals, right? The question of pain to animals is maybe we have a pet, um, but it's for the most part an abstract question, or if not abstract, it's at least um, one step removed, right? Whereas probably for the lives of basically everybody in the Talmud, animals are a part of your life. Um, interacting with animals, you know, the question of how are you going to treat an animal in any given moment, what you're going to prioritize is very real and relevant as it is for um, someone who works in a veterinary office. Totally. It's a part of your home in a way that is not just a pet, but is a part of your whole kind of domestic economy, right? The fact that the Torah, when it's talking about Shabbat, says, Behemtecha, right? Your animal, which belongs to you. And even if not everyone owned an animal, it's widespread enough that that's the case. I do think we need a little bit of full disclosure here, Avi, that neither you nor I are pet people. Uh, have them at home or particularly want to have them. So we have to have a little bit of a grain of salt taken by our audience for you know certain assumptions we bring in that it's regard. That's true, but we wish you and your pets well. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. As long as they're kept far away from us. Um, so let me share one more story here, which I think is um, is also really powerful, and I'm curious how you react to it. There's a story about Rabbi, Rabbi Huda Nasi, traditionally the editor of the Mishnah, and it's talking about a period in his life where he went through some significant suffering, seems like physical pain, and they're kind of diagnosing why did that happen. And the story says that Rabbi began to have a period of personal physical suffering because there was once a calf that was being led out to be slaughtered. And it's an incredible image. The calf comes over, puts its head uh, kind of in Rabbi's, you know, chest wow. <laughs> and starts weeping. Okay. The calf is weeping. And Rabbi says, zil lechach notzarta. Go, this is what you were created for. Meaning, your destiny is to be slaughtered. Don't cry on me. This is where, you know, the end of the line was always meant to be for you. And then we get a kind of anonymous third-party voice, Amre, they said, not clear who said, but seems like heavenly forces, oh, you're not going to have compassion for this calf? Then you're going to suffer. Wow. That's... Beautiful and really intense. Right. You see here very clearly just the narrator here takes for granted, of course, you have compassion on the animal. I don't think it's fair to say the narrator is a vegetarian or is expecting people to be that. But there's something about Robbie's perceived callousness in that moment of, get over it. I'm sorry you're scared to die. That's what you're supposed to do that triggers, elicits this ire from on high, and there's a sense of, you don't, you don't behave that way. It strikes me actually as the sense of entitlement might be the problem, right? It's actually not a problem that he's going to slaughter the animal, which if you 
think killing animals is not okay is a pretty extreme thing to do. Um, you know, the sort of PETA approach of this is murder if you kill an animal. That's not at all what this text is saying, but it is saying when you start to view the world that the purpose of an animal is to serve you or is to be consumed by you, that that is the necessary or obvious end point for that life, then you've lost sight of the fact that that's a life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's something on just sort of like the the emotional level of not not losing your bearings, even if, okay, this is what's going to happen or this is okay. Um, right. The, the entitled sense. No, this is the way it is. I can just sort of close myself off to the emotional dimension here. Something about that's off. Now, does this story take a stand on whether it's biblical or rabbinic, like if we're thinking in those legal terms? No. Um, and that's why medieval authorities split on that. In other words, if you're looking at different Talmudic interpreters, some say, well, the sugya didn't resolve, but the stronger proofs or the end point is more on the side of biblical, so that's what we say. And others saying, no, it's inconclusive and everything biblical was deflected, so therefore we presume it's rabbinic. Um, that doesn't fully get resolved, though I will say the Ramar of Moshe Isserlis, the classic Ashkenazi legal authority in the 16th century, he, in his notes on the Shulchan Aruch, says, Sa'ar ba'alei chayim is de oraita. This is a biblical level concern. And that's his holding. Hmm. And so that does get a significant amount of precedential authority. This is a really important concern. And actually, it flows from the Torah itself. That's his conclusion from that piece of Talmud? Yeah. Basically, he's following some of the people who read that passage in that way. And yeah, that's where we come out, right. he'll say. And in conclusion, tears must be taken seriously. Yeah, something like that. Okay. But now, great. I think we've established this is a core value. And for many people, it's a biblically driven value. But now we'll go more to the questioners. Uh, kind of second-order query on this. But what if it's for some sort of human benefit? Like, Rabbi in that story, right, the, the callousness that he's displaying is, as you pointed out, not in authorizing the slaughter, but in not paying attention to the tears, right? right. So we could say, okay, caring about Sarah Balei means you care about the tears. But can you still do the act, right, that's going to cause the pain, um, and what kind of human benefit, um, as opposed to, let's say, callous indifference or abject cruelty, can actually justify doing certain things. This gets taken up, unsurprisingly, in the Middle Ages in Europe, uh, the question of what are the limits on this principle of tsa'ar ba'alei in the sense of how much do I need to curtail my treatment of animals because of this concern. So one very simple statement is that offered by the author of a book called The Isur Veheter, uh, which is mostly focused on things related to kashrut and, and other things like that. But he has one explicit ruling. He says, if you need to cause pain to an animal, letzorech refuah, for purposes of healing, healing of medicine, humans. correct, um, then 100% that's permitted. Okay, we'll come back to maybe unpacking what that's about. You get an even further extension of this, it seems, in the Trumat Adeshen, Rav Yisrael Iserlein, 
who is uh, in Austria uh, in the 15th century. And he is asked about a number of weird cases. Are you allowed to steal yourself a little? It's mm-hmm. not, not the pleasantest examples. Can you pluck a feather out of a live goose? Can you cut the tongue of a bird so that it will speak? Seems like we might be talking about some kind of parrot or something where it will make a different sound in some way. Or can you cut the ears or tails of animals to make them more attractive? Okay. Now, some of these, quite frankly, I don't know. I'm not sure we know. Maybe there's scholarship out there that knows what's the full cultural context. That's what I was going to ask. For what these things are. There's clearly a context here. Hard to know. There may be some aspects of this, like maybe the quill coming out of the goose is better if plucked when live. Like there may be some functional things here, but certainly the ears and tails seems explicitly by his formulation to be um, just for Linois, for kind of aesthetic purposes. So he says, okay, how do, how do we think about this? So he quotes, paraphrases a Mishnah in Kiddushin, um, which says, at the end of the day, all things that are on earth are here l'shamesh et ha'adam, to serve human beings. That is to say, if you start on some level, potentially with the narrative of the first chapter of Breshit, you can read uh, the architecture of creation as human beings sit at the apex and everything beneath them uh, is for their benefit. This feels like the text that Ravi was reading. Yeah, that's right. Something like that. But then he says, yeah, but doesn't the Torah say you can't like load up an animal with too heavy a burden? You know, or if you see that, you have to help the animal get up. And he assumes, isn't that some manifestation of a concern about pain? So what the Trumata Deshan is actually kind of calling out is he's saying, we have a number of things that really seem like statutorily, legally, halachically require you to circumscribe your actions because of pain of animals. But we have a kind of overarching, is it cosmology or uh, theory or approach where human beings actually are entitled to use creation for their benefit? And how do we square those two together? Yeah, it's an interesting question, both in this particular example and also more broadly when we're thinking about what halacha is and how it guides us in walking through the world to say that maybe there are things that you can do and don't do them. <laughs> you know, you could do them, but you shouldn't do them, right? That You could overload the donkey, but don't. Okay, so we're exactly going to get to this um, in a moment of sort of processing how might we take this home. Here's his answer, right? He's like, how do we deal with that mm-hmm. tension? So the Trumato Dishan lays out a basic theory, which is, yeah, when there is purpose or profit for people— there can't be a problem of tsar bale chayim. When you are just being mean to an animal for no reason, that's the core prohibition. But, he then adds, people avoid doing a lot of the things that are permitted nonetheless because they don't want to be judged badly by God. Meaning, what does he say? Formally, We can justify almost any act of cruelty to animals if we can 
with a straight face, name the benefit to human beings that is going to flow from taking this action. But you may not want to use the full extent of your power in that regard. And in fact, he reports that common practice was not to take that all the way to its conclusion. In other words, people were refraining from doing things that he thinks they were otherwise justified doing. Mm -hmm. I'll give you one example of this that he doesn't quote, but comes up in later later sources. The Ramah, again, Rav Moshe Yisraelis reports that common practice is not to say a shehechianu over new shoes made of leather. The special blessing that you say, right, has allowed us to reach this time when you buy new clothing— uh, the common practice was, well, an animal had to die for these shoes. How can I talk about, thank God I was brought in life to this moment? I can't say a bracha over it. And the Ramah says, well, that's not really based on anything. You should be allowed. It was legitimate to make the shoes. It's new clothing. But he says, but people, because of v'rachamav al kol masav, because God has this kind of capacious compassion for all of creation, they refrain. And he seems to say, okay. That's all right. You don't have to hold that line, but there's something worthy about holding it. I think that's powerful, actually, and that in general, so many different elements of the halachic lifestyle actually lead us in as modern people to think more about where things came from in our life, you know, that um, most people don't necessarily know whether a particular pair of shoes is leather or pleather. But if you are a person who doesn't wear leather shoes on Yom Kippur— You've thought about that and you know, you know, you've thought about what your belt is made out of. People don't know whether an ingredient in food or in medicine came from an animal or not originally in a way that people who are following halakha do know that. Actually, it sort of raises our awareness about so much of the world. Yeah, that's right. It is sort of a take on something as a virtue to cultivate as opposed to a very concrete obligation. There's a way of how do I make myself more sensitive to something? And potentially, even when something is under the rubric of, well, you could justify that, I don't necessarily go there. This text overall makes me think of the example of a circus, actually, maybe as distinct from biomedical ethics, right, where we're trying to actually cure something or, or do some real meaningful work in the world, the way that circuses in general as a society, or at least an American society, we thought, yeah, these animals are suffering, but they're for, it's for a purpose. The purpose is the circus is awesome. <laughs> um, and we've sort of moved as a society to say, you know what? We don't need those elements. We don't necessarily need that bear to stand on its hind legs in a tutu, even though it was fun to watch. And so even though we can do that, and it's not just to be cruel to the bear, we're we're not going to anymore. Yeah. And I think that's exactly actually where this Trumata Deshan comes out because, so it's interesting, when the Ramah quotes this tradition, he says, yeah, anything that is required for either healing or anything else is not a problem of tsa'ar ba'alei chayim, and therefore you can pluck feathers out of a live bird, right? Now, I think in my reading of the Trumat Adeshin, it's actually not 100% clear that he comes out on the side of permitting plucking the feathers out of the live goose. He says, can you do that? And then he says, well, anything that has a real purpose is okay, 
But I feel like in the original text, there's an ambiguity left where it's almost like a question of, and do you really need to do that? Mm-hmm. If you do, fine, we can talk. But there may be some burden that Sar Balei Chaim places of, can you just triple check that you actually need to do that? And that's the sense in which the Isur Veheter's formulation, that other earlier text, which was focused on healing, refuah, medicine, I think is holding the line at a simpler place of, okay, obviously, I think, right, according to the system, one thing we're seeing here that's very clear, human life is more important than animal life, right? That's obviously contested. There are contemporary philosophers that won't take that position. I think it's fair to say, in halacha, human life is always at a higher level than animal life, and to the extent either the loss of animal life or potentially pain caused to animals will help save, improve human life. There's no question what the hierarchy is there. But that doesn't mean that animal life is completely insignificant compared to human life. And again, this notion I'm suggesting of a triple check. Do you need this? Is this the only way to test it? Is there a better way to test it? That comes up. And you see that, I think, even in later poskim that take this up. So the Ramah, remember, ruled that Sa'ar Ba'alei Chaim was a biblical-level problem, and he also ruled you can cause pain to animals to save human life. Mm-hmm. That leads a later posek like the Tzitzel Eliezer, Rabbi Eliezer Waldenberg in the 20th and 21st century, uh, to say, of course, all medical research Uh, is permitted even if it causes pain to animals. But, he says, when possible, you should be applying an anesthetic or you should be doing something to make sure that the animal is not in pain. It's not like cutting a vegetable. There's actually another living being here, and it's channeling that story with Rabi. In other words, great, this animal may have to go to its death or maybe even experience pain, but there are tears here. Pay attention to them. Take steps to avoid them. There's something beautiful in that, and I think also in the self-selecting nature of jobs, right? This person chose this career because they love animals. And so actually, you know, you were saying you and I are not big animal people. I actually think the person writing this question is actually much more qualified to do the work than we are because they have a natural sensitivity and loved for the life of the animal um, in the same way that there's a lot of criticism of zoos, you know, or aquariums that it's not kind to the animals. But every single person who works at a zoo loves animals. That's why they work at the zoo. Um, and actually, there's something sort of uh, tragic about that, right? That those are the people who have to inflict the pain on the animals. And there's also something really important about that. Actually, maybe those are the only people who should be trusted in a job like that. We've also seen the transition of most zoos, even in our lifetime, uh, from being places where animals are in captivity to be on display for the enjoyment of the people who come there, uh, to being much more embedded in conservation societies and a sense of what does it mean to have animals that potentially need awareness raising around and release into the wild. That doesn't mean that the critique of zoos may not remain, but we see the kind of reassessment that you're talking about of what are we doing this for? Do we need it? Um, and there too, you know, Poskim asks, I think, some tough questions. Uh, the Binyan Zion back in the 19th century, Rav Yaakov Etlinger, 
He really pushed back on the Ramaz overbroad formulation of, yeah, for human benefit, it's fine. He said, no, 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 human benefit, but not human profit, right? He wanted to say, just making a buck is not enough to justify it. Mm -hmm. Um, So yes, biomedical research and no to the Instagram account. Yeah, that's exactly right. You can't be like, well, that's getting me a lot of followers and I'm able to feed my family as a result, Right. right? Which might be a real thing for some people. But no, you can't You can't do that, according to him. Not, not everyone agreed with him, but he articulates that. And then you have Rav Moshe Feinstein, who uh, laces into the veal industry um, and people who are raising calves in conditions that he basically feels are torture. He's not taking up the larger question of factory farming, which even at the time he's writing this is not developed to the point it is today. But he essentially says, you can't say... Well, no, people are going to eat this, so it's okay. Basically, you don't need, he says, to torture the animal as a young calf in order to produce a certain kind of cut of meat that's going to be enjoyable to someone who will eat it. Um, That's not the normal way of the world, he basically talks about, right? He says, people have been raising and consuming animals for millennia, and therefore, that's a kind of normal human activity. People have not been putting animals into solitary confinement, uh, doing all kinds of crazy things to them that we may do today just in order to make a profit. Mm -hmm. And there, too, he's pushing and saying, you got to also have some sort of historical, anthropological, and natural compass on this. Like, is what you're doing something that's been folded into normal, pre-industrial, you know, human life for a long time? Or are you now figuring out, oh, if I mistreat this animal in this way, I can suddenly squeeze out a new experience, a new profit? And that's where Sa'ar Ba'alei Chaim has to come much more to the fore. You know, in some ways, this is not a modern question, right? The question is, is this a concept? And you're telling us it goes all the way back. Um, I think that it is a modern question in that— the way we treat animals has changed, and it's something that is is ever-changing and is changing really quickly right now. Um, and I think that's happening in both directions, right? Factory farming is becoming more and more offensive and, and in some cases horrifying, and also there is an awakening, a new sort of awakening to what we're doing with zoos and circuses and um, how we treat pets. I think we are sort of seeing this happen in two directions simultaneously and trying to keep up. Maybe we can turn to the last part of the question which was what, exploring if there's a ritual marker here? Yeah, I think, um, again, I referenced at the top of the episode, it reminds me of someone who once wrote in saying she works with crime scene photos, and is there some bracha or something she can say to mark what she's encountering? Um, I think this was a very specific question for her particular job, which is, When I am encountering death, whether it's euthanizing an animal or some other way, and it's not shchita, it's not um, sort of the traditional ritual slaughter in order to eat, is there some blessing or framing or language that she should bring into that moment? I I don't think we have authorization for a bracha here, that is to say a baruch atah Hashem uh, form, which is really primarily about either thanking God for some kind of immediate benefit to the body right now, or gratitude upon seeing something amazing. This feels to me like a candidate for something more of the yihiratzon form, 
something where you're asking kind of for God and you know the, the universe's permission almost on some level to do something here that's locally out of whack but is going to create ideally greater harmony writ large. I almost think of what's needed here as I'm protecting my kavana. In other words, I'm about to actually inflict pain on this animal. That is something that would normally be not only forbidden, but completely corrosive of the type of person I'm supposed to cultivate. And yet, with the right intention, I feel like I should be doing this, but how do I keep that intention focused? Hey, I'm not just rattling off a day of the Omer. I'm about to do something with like mythic significance. And, you know, I think about there's this amazing story. We might have talked about it in an earlier episode about uh, a rabbi who was in a medical condition towards the end of his life where he could not eat the chrein, the horseradish form of maror at the Seder. Um, and there's a kind of like urban legend about this very famous rabbi uh, that he would pick up the maror and say, Baruch Hashem Elokeinu Melech HaOlam Asher Kitshanu and you're like expecting him to finish that blessing with the ending for the maror, uh, and instead said, V'nishmartem me'od l'nafshotechem. You must be very careful to protect your own lives, which is mm-hmm. a verse in Varim. And then he'd put the maror down on the table. There's probably some room here for maybe a Yehiratzon or a Hinani Muchanu Muzuman, where you essentially say before doing this to the animal, I'm ready to fulfill the biblical commandment about being very careful about human life. And sometimes that requires pain in the larger ecosystem. But I'm really focused that that's the only reason that I'm doing this. It's really beautiful. And I imagine it would definitely have the desired effect of helping you determine when you should and shouldn't do the thing, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you can't say that blessing, if you can't say, here I stand ready to engage in something that will help preserve and further human life, then maybe that's a sign you know, that it's time to take the elephants out of the circus because you couldn't in good conscience make that statement. Um, And when you can, you should know you're doing what you should be doing. I hope that this questioner and everyone working in her industry and everyone interacting with animals in the many different ways that we do interact with animals in our lives is able to is able to see the tears and see the, the life in those animals um, and treat them with as much kindness as possible. Thanks. Oh, please, Mr. Dog Catcher, won't you have a heart today? If you see my little doggy, would you send him on his way? Have a halachic question you'd like answered on the show? Email us at responsaradio at hadar.org. Responsa Radio is a project of the Hadar Institute. Thanks to Jeremy Tabak for producing this podcast and to David Chabinski for recording and editing this episode. See my love.
Would you send him home to me?